Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. My name is Scott. I'm joined today by Drew. Hello there. The subject of today's podcast episode is Japanese director Seijun Suzuki, who had been on my catch-up list for some time now, uh, long before his death in 2017, because, well, he's cited as an influence on Tarantino, but who isn't? Uh, but also likes of Jim Jarmusch, uh, Wong Kar Wai, John Woo, Takeshi Kitano, and surely Takashi Miike, both, both in style and career arc. Uh, Suzuki started directing primarily B-movies that were, I'm led to understand, fairly formulaic gangster flicks for the most part, growing increasingly strange and iconoclastic until the 1967 uh, effort Branded to Kill, which we shall speak of today, which is now regarded as a cult classic but was a financial disaster. The, the lawsuit-laden fallout uh, saw Suzuki Suzuki being blackballed from the industry for 10 years, and we'll go on to discuss the very loose sequel released some 34 years later, Pistol Opera, which was his penultimate film. I'll just get fired right into Brandy to Kill then, which, as I mentioned, started life as another B-movie for the Nikatsu company, but the suits weren't all that enamoured with the script, so they gave their go to the director Suzuki free reign to do whatever he wanted to, and seemingly what he wanted to do was melt the brain of anyone wandering into a cinema expecting a film that had any sort of conventionality to it. I say this in the way of preamble to excuse any recap not making a lot of sense, as, well, it doesn't. Joshishido's Goro Hanada is the number three ranked hitman in Japan, that apparently being a thing, and in a roundabout way agrees to help a friend with a job that turns out to be disposing of a body for the Yakuza that turns, for no readily explicable reason, into a running series of firefights with other gangsters, including at least one other highly ranked hitman. For all the chaos, the main plot driver coming from this sequence is entirely unrelatedly Hanada's car breaking down, leading to him being picked up by an exceedingly strange femme fatale, Anamari's uh, Misako Nakajo, a woman with a death fish, and is as into dead butterflies and birds as much as Hanada is into the smell of boiling rice, which is to say, worryingly obsessively. She offers him an almost impossible-to-execute multi-target contract that, against all odds, and in some instances the laws of physics, seems to be going well until a freak accident sees Hanada kill a bystander, which is apparently a big no-no in the ranked murder league, meaning that there's now a target on his head that the legendary number one killer, played by Koji Nbara, is coming to collect. It's up to Hanada to survive, and perhaps defeat the odds, and claim the number one position for himself. Now, when you say it like that... It's more or less coherent, which I do apologise for, as that's entirely misleading. This film is bonkers, likes of which I've not seen since Operation Kid Brother. I've carefully left out the parts where, for example, Hanada makes an escape by randomly jumping out of the window to land on a passing hot air balloon, or the multiple times items of jewellery prove to be life-saving bullet deflection devices, or indeed, the entire final act where in order to mess with Hanada, his new mortal enemy simply moves into his apartment and lives with him for a while. It is bananas. Now, the weird thing for me, and apologies for the opinion spoilers, is that despite Pistol Opera doing much the same stick, I actually really enjoyed Brandy to Kill in a way that I most certainly did not for Pistol Opera. I don't know if that's the kind of charming jankiness that comes from this low-budget origins, or if it's the hypnotic qualities of Shitiro's cosmetically enhanced cheeks, making him look like a psychotic hamster, or if it's the film's dedication to zagging where every bone in your body expects it to zig. It's a 100% certifiable, absurd, perhaps parodic nonsense, of course, and there's there's more than a few elements of this that ordinarily, ordinarily would just be straight up gratuitous, particularly everything involving Hanada's clothing-averse wife that's maybe only not entirely indefensible as pornography because Hanada's often huffing boiling rice at the same time, giving these scenes a veneer of implausible deniability. I'm certainly not going to call Brandy to kill good in any way, but I can tell you that I laughed like a drain, a plumbing item around for laughing heartily and frequently throughout this film. Am I laughing with it or at it? There's a question. 
but perhaps the answer is not important as a laughter itself. I'm definitely laughing at it. It's ridiculous. Drew, you have a different opinion from this, I gather. Yes, I, I really <laughs> didn't care for this film at all, which is annoying. I was like, wasn't aware of the film or the director at all till you mentioned doing this, Scott. That mm. may be a feeling on my part if it's as influential as everything I've read suggests. But it's certainly a hard sell. I, I yeah. don't know if this was a good entry point to the, to his works. I, I might like to have had a bit more context uh, before going into this, because this is just nuts. Oh, it was, I was sold by the poster. The poster's really stylish, and it looks like a really mm. kind of classic 1960s film. It's like clearly Bond influenced. I thought, okay, yeah. Japanese take on Bond. That's, that's what I was expecting. I'm a, yeah. I, I <laughs> deliberately read nothing else about the film. I was like, like look at the poster. And like, and then this is a film I got. Okay, <laughs> it's like, and I didn't like, quite early on. I was already wondering what to expect from this film because of what this film is going to be. Because the the former hitman that he does a favor for, who's helping him transport the businessman across the country, hmm. um, starts acting in the most amateurish way possible. It's like jumping about like a monkey. Yeah. At one point when the firefight starts when they get ambushed and I is this bad acting? Is it deliberate? What's going on? Like, and there's no way to tell. <laughs> yeah. And then it only gets weirder from there. But the very fact like his first job is to transport a businessman across Japan who's being targeted for something. That's the setup. And then that businessman turns out later to be the number one killer. Why? 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 Yeah. <laughs> it was my well, I made films of this. Um, it's yeah, it's not that well explained. But to be honest, by the time you get to the end, it's probably the least important question that is raised in the whole thing. It's, <laughs> nothing's explained. And like having, I watched some of the interviews that are on the on the Criterion Collection release, and clearly, the director didn't know what was happening. Some of it too didn't care. Yeah. It's willfully incomprehensible. Um, yeah. But things like butterflies, massively significant part of this. And what did the director have to say about butterflies? They were in the script, so I kept them. What did they mean? Ask Yoso Takawa. <laughs> or Tawaka, sorry. Right? That, that's good. I'm, I'm glad you care so much about the film. You have no idea why you're putting anything in. Yeah. <laughs> There's a line in the Wikipedia article, and I don't know how accurate it is, but it's saying that in the, uh, directing as actors, Suzuki let them play the roles as they saw fit and only intervened when they went off track, which suggests that there was ever a track to begin with, which I do not believe for a second. Yeah. <laughs> he does say something like that in one of those interviews too. Um, yes. he yes. say, I let everyone overact as much as they wanted because everyone's chewing the scenery at all points in this yeah. film. It's ridiculous. What he said was actually it was Joshi Shido was basically the only person who was improvised. He was telling everybody else to do it, but they all wanted to be directed and only um, Joshi Shido would um, improvise and like um, saying because they thought that a director's role was to direct like <laughs> is it not yeah. I kind of thought that's what they were to do but yes but it's, no. it's kind of in the job title isn't it yeah and he's saying some of I think quite telling things like my films could be edited one day I, I don't I didn't spend um, too long editing the film yeah mm. I can definitely tell I know actually the the schedule that that studio had was 102 yeah. film, 104 films a year. They released a double bill every week. They yeah. had, I think, it's a 10 days pre-production, 25 days shooting, three days post-production. That's for everything, including yeah. um, dubbing and <laughs> editing. So they didn't have a lot of time. But in these interviews, 
Suzuki's talking about that um, it, from another Japanese student. I'm afraid I forget the name that had influenced them, um, and they were saying like, you only shoot what you're going to need. Like, but, but how do you need it? That's the point of good editing. You like, you find mm. in the edit that you need something else. Maybe you should have shot it. <laughs> like, you don't always know while you're shooting whether you're going to need something or not. Um, yeah. You find uh, where it's like he didn't seem to care. It's like it's edited in a, in a day and already had an idea of what to do. Like, okay, it's weird too. Uh, and also, the fact that it's not thought out at all is really clear. And, and first, is first of all, the creepy rice thing, which has probably ruined rice for me forever in a way that um, <laughs> our, our dear friend Craig once ruined after eight minutes for me. This kind of weird rice pervert. You think it's some sort of really important thing and in fact in one of these <laughs> interviews Seijin Suzuki said that it was thought this is a really good way to show this is a Japanese killer so that basically it's a hard on <laughs> from the smell of rice and not from a T-bone steak but later on in the same interview he said that actually the only reason the rice is there at all was they didn't have enough money to make the film so solicited product placement one of the companies that wanted product placement was a rice cooker maker <laughs> and that's why it's in there. Yeah. And I'm sure they were delighted by by this placement in this film. <laughs> but then apparently also it was the director's idea to make the rice an aphrodisiac as apparently the hitman wouldn't normally wouldn't want to go to his to go to bed with his wife. Like, mm. What? <laughs> it's maybe to give you an idea of how I came to this of how I felt by this film by the end though. I I'm watching it and there were some really interestingly composed shots. The monochrome photography is striking in places. Yeah. Except that I'm watching this and I'm thinking, in another film, like for example, Scott, there's a scene. Oh God, I have no idea where it is because I'm not idea of like the timeline of this film at all. But you have shots like there's like kind of quick movement past pattern concrete, which kind of almost has like a kind of hypnotic, mm. almost like moirish pattern to it in the film. And then there's a scene where he's in a, I guess, a tunnel standing next to this big grey concrete wall. Yeah. In another film that I liked, <laughs> I would have looked at that and thought, I'm quite impressed how they've taken such a dull bit of concrete and given it such high contrast and made it look really interesting. Whereas in this film, I'm watching that scene thinking, if this was in colour, that would be the ugliest, dullest place you've ever been. Yeah. So like that was the the direction I was seeing things from this film. I just was not enjoying it because I like I didn't care about anything that was happening or why it was um, why it was happening. I did laugh a couple of points, possibly in spite of myself. I must admit, uh, when he's uh, at one point you're seeing as a montage of him actually doing his job of being a killer yes. uh, for hire, and he's shooting people through the drain pipe to the sink in their office. Yes, a particular high point for me, that. Um, <laughs> but then at one point, he's saved from death by being shot in the belt buckle, and I swore. Yes, there's lots of very silly things in this film. As um, something so silly is repeated, at least... It may be repeated once again with another belt buckle, but it's definitely done by a headband at one point. So yes, it's uh, just, just daft. I don't, it's striking looking, but that's just film just didn't do anything for me. It's like, it was... It's kind of frustrating because there were bits of that I wanted to like more. Mm-hmm. And I don't... Oh, as much as last night I was cursing you, um, having watched <laughs> these two films together, like even suggesting them. If I'm honest, I don't regret having watched this one at least because 
it's different. I've not seen anything like it. Yeah. And hope never to see anything like it again. But <laughs> I have seen it now. It's it's different and interesting. I, honestly, I'm not quite sure why it's so influential because I, it's obscure for the sake of being obscure. Yeah. Um, I... I probably got a bit more about it because I, I, I've been looking to get back into watching a few more Takashi Miike films and there's strong elements of this that seems to pop up in a lot of uh, Miike's work, particularly all his, you know, his Dead or Alive series is clearly inspired by this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got more or less the same tropes of you know, weird nonsense happening to charismatic people and that's that's essentially the, the plot of this. But obviously I got a bit more joy out of it to you, but yeah. I was talking about, I don't understand why it's so influential. Um, mm. And there are, as is so often the case, lots of people saying, reading different things. And I guess that's a part of art. You bring your own interpretation to it. Yeah. But there's like lots of suggestions, you know, it's like, it's, it's a satire. I'm not quite sure what it's a satire of, to be honest. But um, yeah. as much as I've, uh, he was fed up of doing bog standard Yakuza films. That's more yeah. reactionary than satirical. But there's, you can read into themes of like, I guess it's something similar to the Japanese version of the Hayes Code that mm. allowed you to only have nudity in certain. There's a lot of nudity in this film, yeah. um, but only in certain ways. Um, and you said you couldn't have like hips moving and things, and lower half the body had to be obscured in certain scenes. And a lot of people saying it's like he's playing with that and he's you kind know, of making fun of that and. It almost feels like that. I could have bought that having not heard him interviewed. Yes. <laughs> because there are scenes where it's like, kind of, particularly uh, slightly different from how the censorship in this film works, which is like you can't, um, even if you're not seeing anything, like you can't have like two people's hips in close proximity and moving because apparently that would suggest they're having sex and that's bad. <laughs> uh, but I think it's quite well known that genitals are um, considered obscene in Japanese media for mm. reasons and in, in Japanese pornography they're pixelated I think um, yeah. and so in this they're completely obscured and the way like it's kind of it like, gets so close to showing stuff but then like a shadow will move or a bit of clothing will fall it feels very deliberate yeah, I feel like he's like taking things deliberately right up to the edge and it feels like that except that in these interviews in the Criterion Collection edition again he says that no basically all my compositions were in my head beforehand that's happenstance so <laughs> either he's lying and I don't know why you do that or people are reading way more into this than it's actually there which is quite common so yeah so I like Watch this thinking there are maybe some like themes in here, but having seen things like that, heard things like that, like, maybe there isn't actually all that much in there. Yeah, um, I guess we, we'll move on to his sort of loose, very loose sequel, Pistol Opera, um, which, as I mentioned, while it's doing broadly the same things, I just did not get in with it at all. But Drew, what was Pistol Opera about, if such a thing is possible to describe? Yeah, Pistol Opera. And despite Suzuki's assertion that the ending of Branded to Kill was ambiguous as to the fate of Hanada and that he didn't get to be number one, that being the point of the film apparently, <laughs> a loose follow-up was made in 2001's Pistol Opera in which Hanada, played now by Mikijiro Hira, though Suzuki had wanted Joshi Shido to reprise his role, is now a has-been with the honorary ranking of number zero reflecting his former status as number one. Hanada, though, is mostly irrelevant, as Pistol Opera is about a current assassin, Mikiko Isumi's Miyuki Minazuku, number three, Stray Cat, 
Like Canada, her purported profession seems to matter little, as the membership of the Guild of Assassins seems to spend most of its time attempting to kill one another, <laughs> which, well, seems a poor use of resources at best. <laughs> to this end, Miyuki is approached by Sayuka Oyekeo, her agent, with a contract to kill number one, Hundred Eyes. There then follows a turgid two-hour experience of watching a bunch of barely connected things happening to people I care nothing about, with a misdirect about number one's true identity copied directly from Brandy to Kill. Listen, I try to be as open as I can to different types of films. I want to experience new things in film. I try hard not to be dismissive, but I also know from prior multiple experiences that I really dislike avant-garde cinema. And I hate pistol opera so much. (laughs) It's garbage. And I struggle to find anything positive to say about it. Seijin Suzuki said that he didn't care about story. That all that mattered was that the film was entertaining. Now, maybe he was working with with a definition of entertainment markedly different to mine. But he's, well, zero for two for me right now. (laughs) In interviews, the director stated that he wanted to surprise the audience with his films. And I would say he's done that here. I certainly wasn't expecting a score containing a steel drum band, <laughs> nor a European guy wearing a leather duster and seemingly not hugely familiar with either Japanese nor, for whatever reason that it's there, English, as one of the rival assassins. Presumably there is a reason for the inclusion of several lines of dialogue in very stilted English for a number of characters, but, well, I certainly don't care what it is. <laughs> There are some visuals, both settings and compositions, that I appreciate a good deal. Or would if they were in more or less any other film, or in service of anything at all. And I acknowledge that his choices are deliberate. That, rather than being incapable or ill-equipped, Suzuki had a definite vision. Albeit double vision, as Pistol Opera is in so many ways just a colour retake of Brandy to Kill. I just wish it was a vision that I could get on board with in any way at all. It's willfully weird and impenetrable, and once or twice twice creepy and inappropriate, and it's really, really not for me. Yeah, I actually completely agree on this one. This did nothing for me. I can't bring myself to hate it, to be honest. Um, It it didn't hit quite those boxes, but certainly it was something that completely bounced off me, and... uh, as you say, clearly there's a, some sort of driving ideas behind these things. I mean, also this is a much more, well, stagey um, film than Brandon to Kill was. Yeah, certainly very literally towards the end of it. And clearly there's some rationale behind that, but I just, by that point, didn't care. I, I don't know if it's because I, I, I did find that um, in Brandy to Kill, George um, Ishido does have a fair amount of charisma for whatever reason, the way he's chewing up the scenery, and it just did not translate into the same characters in Pistol Opera. Uh, I didn't find anyone here that I could even remotely latch onto to care about in the slightest. Um, The the way that uh, Stray Cat would occasionally just lapse into making movements like a cat, because that's what assassins do, was just quite annoying. And I found most of the characters in this quite annoying and therefore I found most of the film quite annoying so when it tries to ask for a little bit of leeway in doing something a bit more avant-garde yeah I just was not being carried along for the ride and yeah I, I just didn't really like anything that it was doing yeah uh, I agree again lots of well certainly a few uh, very nice compositions some nice shots but it's all in service of nonsense and I, I 
didn't get anything at all out of Pistol Opera, which is a little bit strange because it is not all that far away in terms of what it's trying to do and what it actually does from Brandy to Kill. And I wonder if it's just because I was watching them one after the other and had I watched this with a a gap of 34 years or whatever in between them, then maybe (laughs) I'd have been a bit more appreciative of kind of revisiting uh, that uh, these kind of tropes and these kind of methods. Uh, But ultimately, no, no thank you. Um, Certainly watching them one after the other was not doing it any favours at all and I did not like it one bit so yes <laughs> yeah the proximity may be a thing because i'm really i'm not joking it's basically the same film again but in color mm. um they know me about charisma i'm not sure but i quite like the the lead in pistol opera and especially like i'd be interested to see something that wasn't this yes <laughs> um, and joshi shido's overacting actually bothered me i didn't like him at all um, mm. Rather than finding him entertaining, charismatic, I just thought he was bad. Right, but yeah, and the, like you mentioned the cat thing there, I worked that out afterwards. I was like, because I read a review of this, and I was like, she's doing like literal cat. Like, it's like, was that what that was supposed to be? <laughs> she was just an idiot because I've seen cats; they don't do that. <laughs> so honestly, I didn't make the connection because well, I was, I was really struggling to watch this, but I, I didn't realize that's what she was doing because I've seen cats. Cats don't do these things. What is she doing? Um, I was distracted by her, like, apparently she got bored of, of the conversation and so just says, eeny, meeny, miny, mo for reasons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, cats definitely don't do that. I've never seen a cat <laughs> start eeny, meeny, um, Maybe there's a cat equivalent, I don't know. Yeah, like, there's, uh, there aren't any characters in this. That was nobody likable, but like that creepy little child that appears at some point. Yeah, who I was certain the whole thing was actually going to turn into being her younger self or something. <laughs> yeah, um, but no, was just there, then to be uncomfortably naked at one point. Yeah, that then, was weird. Really and then weird. offer sexual favors to her. Yeah, that was <laughs> creepy. I, I, I did not care for that. Why was this adolescent child offering to masturbate the main character? I, no, <laughs> take that yes. out of the film, please. I don't want to see that. That's not right. <laughs> Which is broadly you could say to the entire film, really. <laughs> yeah. Um, so again, like I, I can appreciate this. Like, it's not like it's a a badly made film. It's not. He's a bad filmmaker. It's clearly he wanted to make a particular thing, made a particular thing. It's just that the particular thing he's made, I find terrible and boring <laughs> <laughs> and creepy. Yes. Yeah. Um, safe to say, I, I'm now no longer on the list of going to be catching up with other Seijin Suzuki works. So let us know if there's anything there that's uh, particularly noteworthy that uh, perhaps it should be that is not quite so nuts as Pistol Opera. Yeah, this is um, just from the clips he showed during those interviews that I watched, Scott, that I mentioned. There's maybe one film of his that I might want to check out just because it looked visually interesting, which is um, a film from maybe the year before Brandy to Kill, maybe two, called Tokyo Drifter. Which is a, right. another particularly famous one, hasn't it? Yeah. I'm quite reticent now, having experienced these two, but that at least looked visually interesting. Uh, it's a colour film rather than um, right. a black and white one for like some very striking, pure, highly saturated, pure red backgrounds. In fact, I think it's a Technicolor film, which honestly, I don't really like the way Technicolor looks, so that may not be interesting. But it looked interesting at least. Yeah. But as uh, for anything else I think it's very very unlikely I would um, yeah. ever want to see his stuff again <laughs> yeah so maybe we'll get to that but pr- honestly probably I won't 
yeah, so that will wrap us up for the day. Um, if you have anything you'd like to get in touch with us about, then you can do. We're on the emails at podcast at fudsonfilm.com and we're on Twitter at fudsonfilm. But until next time, I shall bid you adieu and wish to take care of each other. And I'm sure that Drew will do too. Fare thee well. 